good morning. Today, we are going to jump into John chapter 11. And um, if you've been following along in the book of John, the gospel of John, maybe it's worth pointing out here that John is very different than the other gospels. So when we say there's synoptic gospels, what do we mean by that? We've talked about that before. Exactly, exactly. Uh, the, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke tend to record very similar events. They have, in fact, in some places, a verbatim copy of each other, word for word, an account of Jesus' life and his ministry. John is different. John, written probably later than the other Gospels, is recorded from a completely different point of view and focuses on a few key miracles or signs that Jesus performs to establish who he is as the Messiah and the Son of God. One of the miracles that we will read about today is the resurrection of Lazarus. This is a very, very popular story from the New Testament. Show of hands, how many people have heard of the resurrection of Lazarus before? Okay, good, excellent. And even the children, so that's a good sign. And I don't know if it was under compulsion you rose your hand, but I uh, appreciate that. So what, what is the, let's just start by this. What meaning does does raising someone from the dead have to a first century Jew. And I've kind of given you a clue to the passage that kind of talks about where this might have come from in Ezekiel. So just right off the bat, before we read Ezekiel, and we are going to read it, what, would, what, what were the thinking around the resurrection of the dead in the first century? What do we know about that? Okay, so physical resurrection, that could be one aspect of it. What do we know about that? Well, the thinking. To me, I just think, you know, a lot, they have, you know, magicians and, you know, wise men or whatever. And they would, you know, even in Egypt, like Pharaoh had his wise men and they could perform some miracles, Mm -hmm. you know. And so I think that... Rising some from the dead, that mm-hmm. is even beyond, you know, maybe even like Jesus' miracles. Some of them, they mm-hmm. could be like, oh, well, somebody could do this, maybe. But I don't think, I think rising someone from the dead is beyond something okay. that a magician can, you know. He's definitely dead. Right, see, that's what they for four days. Yeah. Fake news. <laughs> Fake news. I like that. Yeah. You know, they would, they, would, mm-hmm. they would probably stage some things like mm-hmm. that to make it look like they were... Okay, it, it could happen. Um, maybe to kind of, you know, focus on, on what this would mean to the Jewish people. For the Jewish people, there was different schools of thought around, around you know, the resurrection of the dead and the afterlife, right? What happens when I die? So, right, right? so the Sadducees okay. thought there was no resurrection at all. So... We have this group of people called the Sadducees. They reject afterlife. Um, <clears throat> sat, it, it, this comes from the, the Hebrew word sadduk, which probably means righteous or righteous people. <clears throat> this is a group of people who probably, it's funny because the Sadducees are a group of people that left no writings that we have today. 
They were a small minority within the Jewish community. The only things we know about the Sadducees are what their opponents wrote about them. So you have to take some of what you read and know about them with a grain of salt, because remember, history is written by the victor or by the person with the bias, right? This happens today with fake news, right? Uh, depending on your source, different people have different biases and different agendas. But the you know, but what we can put together from this, um, Josephus, I've talked about him before. Um, if you're going to be in this class, you should probably know this. This is a, a Jewish historian of the first century who was um, kind of played both sides. He played the Roman side and he played the, the, the Orthodox Jewish side. But he wrote a number of works that we still have today, which is another amazing thing. And a lot of it corroborates some of the history of the Bible. One of the things he writes about the Sadducees is that they were jerks to both they were just as big of jerks to foreigners and Gentiles as they were to their own peers. <laughs> okay? So he kind of corroborates what we read about them in the, in the New Testament. <clears throat> now, they were also, they were the aristocrats. Aristocrats. Which means they were kind of, aristo. They were the wealthy upper class of the Jewish people of the time. And because they were... Um, they were allies of Rome. They were awarded the high priesthood most of the time. So most, I, wouldn't, I don't know if we can even say this, many of the high priests of, of the first century, of the first century BC and the first century AD, were probably Sadducees. Not all of them. Okay. <clears throat> What was the alternate view to the Sadducees? Oh, and here's the most important one. Not only did they reject the afterlife, they also rejected the prophet and writings of the Hebrew Bible. What do I mean by that? The Tanakh, which is our acronym for the Hebrew Bible, is our Old Testament. It consists of <clears throat> the law, the writings, and the prophets. That's the three letters of Tanakh. And what they refer to is the law, which is the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That is the law. That was held as canon by all Jewish groups. All Jews everywhere hold the law, the first five books, as sacred canon writings. Then they split. And... We have the prophets and the writings. So it's all the other books. It would be 34 books. The other 34 books of the Old Testament or, or letters were considered canon, not by the Sadducees, but by the other major group, which was called the what? Pharisees. This was the majority. The Pharisees were the majority of the Jewish people of the first century. They regarded... The prophet, prophetic writings and the writings as, as canon. So a Pharisee of the first century would have considered all 39 books of our Old Testament to be law, canon. 
because the Sadducees rejected the prophet and the writings, the prophetic books and the writing books of the Old Testament, they were free to interpret the law any way they wanted to. This was a, this was a very cunning move on the part of the Sadducees. They rejected everything from Ezekiel to Daniel to Psalms to Proverbs to Malachi, the whole thing. Why? Because then they were free to tell you exactly what they thought of the Jewish religion. They were not bound to any of the other writings that the other Jews held to. So one of the major things that arises in the prophets and in the writings, and especially in Ezekiel, which we first start to really see in Ezekiel, is the resurrection of the dead. If they do not feel that Ezekiel, which folks, Ezekiel, even, even a critical atheist scholar today will say Ezekiel was already considered canon by most Jews before the time of Christ. Okay? It, was already, it was already the canon. right? If they're rejecting Ezekiel, then they get to reject anything Ezekiel said. And one of the things Ezekiel talks about, which is one of the most famous passages in Ezekiel, probably if you've ever heard of Ezekiel, there's one chapter in particular you've heard of. It is the Valley of of the dry bones. How many, by a show of hand, have heard of the Valley of the Dry Bones before? Okay, good. So almost everyone again. This, now I'm just going to say I am reading Ezekiel right now, full disclosure. It is a fantastic book. It is not for everyone if you're thinking of it in a way of, and I don't mean that in a weird way, I mean be prepared when you read it that it is heavy. And it is, it is, it is not a joy necessarily and flower and sunshines. Absolutely read it. It is a, a magnificent book of the Old Testament, but it is some heavy stuff, folks. I, I, I highly encourage you, of course, to read the entire Bible. Read Ezekiel. Do not, do not shy away from it just because it may be obscure or you may have, have not really heard much about it in the past. Please read it. This is really important. We need to read this today. Ezekiel 37 verses 1 to 14. I have a voluntold, I mean volunteer, <laughs> in the audience who would love to read it for us. Emma, why don't you go ahead and do that for us, please? All of it? 1 through 14, please. The hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me out of the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones, and he led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. And he said to me, Prophecy over these bones and say to them O dry bones hear the word of the lord thus says the lord god to these bones behold i will cause breath to enter you and you shall live and i will lay sinews 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 like tendons upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that i am the lord so I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were news on them, and flesh came upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophecy to the breath, prophecy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, and they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceeding a great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, Our bones have dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophecy, and say to them, Thus says the Lord God. 
Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves. O my people, I will bring you to the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. When I open up your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Let's do timeline. Ezekiel. Ezekiel. Ezekiel is probably, I think, it is so funny, because I decide, so I, every, every morning, for about an hour, I read the Bible, and it's my Bible time and my prayer time. And the book that I choose to read, you know, you know every day I read some, some passages from the Bible, and I usually read one book at a time. I just, I just kind of decide, okay, this, this month I'm going to do Ezekiel, or this month I'm going to do John, or, or what have you. About four weeks ago, I decided, kind of out of the blue, really, to be honest with you, what I thought was out of the blue, I'm going to read Ezekiel. Now, I don't know about you. I, I, I don't know how many of you would, would crack open the good book and say, today is Ezekiel. I'm going to read Ezekiel, right? Uh, that, you know, It was just as weird for me as you might imagine. <clears throat> At the exact same time, Dan decides that he is going to do a sermon series on Ezekiel. Now, folks, I do not believe in coincidences. I, I think this is divine. And so if you remember from a few weeks ago, uh, or actually, yeah, maybe just a couple weeks ago, Dan was talking about Ezekiel, about who the man was. I'm not going to get into it because it's not really important for today, but he probably was a priest, or he was of the priestly class, deported to Babylon before the destruction of Jerusalem. So there are several waves of deportation that happen. 605, Nebuchadnezzar becomes king of Babylon. He attacks Somewhere around 597-ish, I believe. Somewhere in this period, Ezekiel is taken to Babylon as a captive. And he starts to prophesy. So I'm going to just tell you, Ezekiel is like almost like a Twitter blog in a way of the Old Testament. Because in real time, he is relaying to you, the audience, not only the prophecy and oracles that God is giving him, but the real-time information that he is getting from his people back home in Israel. This is, this is a blow-up of Jerusalem, but just imagine, this is Israel right here. This is where he was taken from. He is deported to Babylon, which is about 600 miles to the east. That's a long way in antiquity. That's, that's, many, that's many, many weeks' journey by foot or by camel or by horse. So he is way over here, okay, in Babylon, with a, a group of th- many thousands of Hebrew, or Jews who have been deported along with him, while Judea and Jerusalem is still under the control of the Israelites for the time being. But, long story short, a puppet king is put on the throne. He decides to rebel against Babylon and ally himself with Egypt. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, decides he has had enough. And he attacks Jerusalem and and lays siege to it. He lays siege to it for a year and a half. While this is going on, Ezekiel is prophesying in Babylon, saying, folks, a terrible time is coming. When you think it's bad that we're here and deported, everyone is going to lose their home. Judea is going to essentially be destroyed. Jerusalem is going to be completely destroyed, and the temple is going to be destroyed, and God's glory is going to leave from it. So in real time, he is talking about this to the people. Now, he makes the comment, Ezekiel makes the comment that, He is treated like an entertainer by the Jews. They come to listen to him at the city gates 
because they think he's entertaining, but they don't listen to a word he says. They say, Ezekiel, you're a funny guy, and we like to come and hear what you have to say about, oh, you know, about how we're worshiping pagan gods and about how we're being wicked and awful and how, uh, you know, a man is taking his neighbor's wife, and boy, you're just a silly guy. We, you know, what are you going to say today, right? But they don't take anything that he says to heart. And Ezekiel, probably as you might imagine, is probably a little bit lamenting about that, right? And so he says, the people treat me as like I'm some kind of like, you know, show, some kind of freak show. But in real time, he is, he is talking about the events that are unfolding 600 miles to the west in, in Israel. Jerusalem falls to Nebuchadnezzar somewhere around July of 586 BC. A few months later, refugees, somewhere around January of 587, 585, sorry, counting wrong, backwards, a refugee arrives in Babylon and says, I have terrible news. Jerusalem has fallen. It has been burned to the ground. There are many, many, many thousands of deaths. And the ones who are left are being deported back to Babylon. In real time, in fact, just a few chapters before this, around 33, he says this. It's, it's shocking. It feels like you're reading a news release, like, a, like you, know, doo, 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 you know, breaking news kind of thing. It's, it's, it, it gives you chills as you're reading it. So why am I telling you all of this? He has been spending the first you know, 30-some chapters of Ezekiel saying, you've got to reform. A terrible time is coming if you don't shape up Focus back on God and get your life back in order. Now, the, the most horrible thing you can possibly imagine has happened. The temple is gone. It's not just damaged, it's gone. God's glory has left the temple. In fact, if you read Ezekiel, it is a magnificent account of God's glory with his four cherub on his throne and his spirit departing the temple saying, I'm done, I'm, I'm leaving it. Now, how shocking is that to a Jew of antiquity. It's the worst thing you can imagine for the people who are the Orthodox pious Jews. Jerusalem has been destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar didn't just, just damage it. He made an effort to completely destroy the walls of, of the city so that they weren't there anymore. And every, every house was destroyed. So now we get to Ezekiel chapter 37. So now the rest of Ezekiel he's writing for the rest of his time about the future. Times are bad. They're as bad as they've ever been. They've never been as bad as they are now for the Jewish people. But what's happening in the future? Ezekiel writes a quintessential chapter about what is going to happen. What is the future of God's people on this earth and, and afterwards? He writes about the resurrection of the dead. The Valley of Dry Bones, folks, is not just a Pink Floyd video. It's it's not just a weird you know, movie you might see on an airplane coming back from Europe. This is, this is a, a fundamental vision that God is providing to his people saying, you think it's bad, don't worry, you have a future. And in fact, that future includes you coming back from the dead. Not just physically, but spiritually. You will be a nation again. And in all of you who have been scattered to the rest of the world, and, and remember in the first century, the Jews are scattered. Um, they are, they, it's called the diaspora. They, they are in Egypt and they are in Libya and they are in Rome and they are in Greece. 
and they're in Judea, and they're in Syria, and they're in what we call Turkey today. God is saying, don't worry. I'm going to bring you all back together, and you're going to have a home, and I'm going to take care of you, and you're, you're going to come back from the dead. That's why we read all of this to talk about why the resurrection of Lazarus is so important. So we're going to skip ahead to the first century AD, to the book of John, Gospel of John. And now we're going to talk about this man called Lazarus. So before I jump into any of that, what questions do you have about all of the stuff I just talked about? Comments? Stunned silence like Ezekiel's well, people. From some of what I read also regarding this passage in Ezekiel, it's not just the physical resurrection of the dead, but it's also a comparison or commentary on the spiritual condition of Israel. Yes. Excellent, excellent, excellent. And as we read about Jesus and his miracles, they often have a double meaning, at least. They often have a physical meaning. I'm going to heal you of your blindness, your physical blindness, but it also means spiritual blindness. I'm going to raise you from the dead. It also means your spiritual death. Maybe I'll ask you, Steve, what do you mean by spiritual resurrection? Or what do you think it means? Well, I mean, in this passage, if you look at where Israel was at the time, Yep. Um, so not only, you know, so Ezekiel's preaching to these dry bones because, yep. by the way, these people you were just talking about weren't listening to him, like you said. So he's preaching to the dry bones, yep. and God's saying, hey, these dry bones are listening to you. And, and suddenly the life is coming back. There's a whole imagery taking place there that, you know, doesn't just mean, hey, I'm going to physically restore you. It's It's like... It's the spiritual resurrection and restoration. And, and that's really, truly what we can take from it, too. You know, that, that uh, you know, there might be pastors preaching to spiritually dead yep. churches. And guess what? God can come in there and restore them, too. I love this. And it's just, you can take that as far as you want to. I love that. That's I awesome. I think it speaks, speaks to the overall redemptive spirit of God that he is out to redeem everything. Physical, spiritual, our emotional state, everything. He is in the business of redemption. Redemption. Giving us back what we've lost. God's redemption is total. I love this. Give back what we've lost. I love it. And (laughs) the ultimate loss is your life. Right? That's the number one thing that you could lose or give or what have you. Give it back. Awesome. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and read the Gospel of John, chapter 11. And we're going to read verses 1 to 16. Who would like to read that for me? A man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in the town of Bethany where Mary and her sister Martha lived. Mary was the woman who later put perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. Mary's brother was Lazarus, the man who was now sick. So Mary and Martha sent someone to tell Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness will not end in death. 
It is for the glory of God to bring glory to the Son of God. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. But when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. Then Jesus said to his followers, let's go back to Judea. The followers said, but teacher, some people there tried to stone you to death only a short time ago, and now you want to go back there? So Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the daylight, he will not stumble because he can see by the world's light. But if anyone walks at night, he stumbles because there is no light to help him see. After Jesus said this, he added, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him. The followers said, But Lord, if he is only asleep, then he will be all right. Jesus meant that Lazarus was dead, but his followers thought he meant Lazarus was really sleeping. So Jesus said plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe. But let's go to him now. Then Thomas, the one called Didymus, said to the other followers, let us also go so that we could die with him. Awesome. Who, who is Mary and Martha and Lazarus? What, what famous passage do we know about them? Yes, Lily. <laughs> when Jesus came to their house and one of them was cleaning and wanted her to help her. Mm-hmm. And she was just listening to Jesus. Yep. Very good, sweetheart. That's exactly right. Jesus makes a visit to his friend's house, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Mary is busy attending to Jesus and and listening to him. And she famously anoints him with, with oil and on his feet wipes her hair on his feet to wipe it off. And, and while she's doing all of this, Martha, who's slaving away in the kitchen, is complaining to Jesus, Jesus, why don't you tell her to come help? I mean, I'm doing all the work here, trying to prepare, right, our meal and clean, keep the house clean. And all she's doing, just sitting around listening to you. And when Jesus famously, famously says, leave her alone. <laughs> she's doing what is right. I am only going to be here a short time. You know, uh, this is great. The fact that she cares about me and she wants to listen to me and attend to me, don't don't take it so seriously. And of course, uh, you know, that that's the point at which Judas realizes that this ex- tangent, long story short, this very expensive perfume that's cost a year's wages has been used to anoint Jesus and he's super pissed off about it. He says that money could have been used for the poor. He really wanted to pocket the profit from it. Yada, 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 he, he goes and betrays Jesus. <clears throat> John is admitting that his audience probably already knows this story. Why would they have already known this story? In the very beginning, it says, This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. Why would he start with that if that story isn't even until chapter 12 in John? Looking back, yes. The other three Gospels have probably already started to be circulated by this point, and certainly the story of this has already been circulated. So John is admitting what we can already kind of piece together here, that his, his writing is coming after those, and he is writing this acknowledging, I have a different story to tell here. I have additional information to share here. Why is it that this is not a synoptic Gospel? Because John, the author, if we extrapolate, is already admitting, you already know the stories. You already know the stuff that Matthew, Mark, and Luke have told you. I'm going to tell you some additional content that they have not talked about. 
because it's important and, and writing is expensive and you've already heard it a hundred times, so I'm gonna tell you the additional stuff you didn't already know. So, here we have what to you might seem like something that may have happened after the anointing, but no, that's not true because the anointing of Jesus happens right before his, his um, betrayal <clears throat> that his friend Lazarus is sick. And then we jump into this whole thing about Jesus waiting. Jesus waiting. The reports come in, Lazarus is sick. He's got some illness. Remember, this is the first century. I mean, even like today, people get sick, they die. But in the first century, you could die from, you know, just about anything. Uh, bug bite, um, dysentery. You could get, you know, coronavirus. I don't know. You get the plague. Uh, there's many ways to die in the first century. Lazarus is sick. COVID-1. Co- <laughs> That's good. I like that. That's good. Right? That's good. I like that. He goes, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory that the Son of God might be glorified through it. My goodness. Just last week, the week before, we talked about why was the blind man born blind from birth? Was it because God was punishing him for his sin or his parents' sin? Remember, what did, it, what did that, Jesus famously say about that? Oh, the glory of God. And goodness, you say to yourself, oh, well, he suffered and God just did that. What was the end result for the blind man? He could see again. He, could see again. he was healed. He actually had, what's even better is that he understood salvation yes. because of it. He met this Jesus is it. and he was saved. This is it. Folks, in some ways, it doesn't matter if you're born blind. It doesn't matter if you're born crippled or lame or you can't walk or you have a skin condition. That's not the point. The point is, are you going to be saved? Are you going to recognize God and who he is and follow Jesus as your personal savior? That's what counts because according to Ezekiel, someday you are going to come back from the dead and if you did believe that jesus was who he says he is you're going to live in paradise isn't that way better than a skin condition or blindness for all of us i totally love that we're all spiritually blind, we're all spiritually crippled, we're all spiritually dead. And now, but isn't it so hard, Steve, to see the big picture? Your, your, your brother is sick. You're, you went to God. We're living in the small picture. Yes, yes. <clears throat> Here's our universe. <laughs> right? Here's God's universe. We see the here and now, and oh my gosh, we were just talking about how our trip to, to London right before the big plague breakout seems like it was years ago at this point. It literally feels like it, it could have been years ago. It was only two and a half months ago. Human perception is so narrow. We are just so focused on the here and now, right? On a today and in this very moment. Lazarus gets sick. The very first thing that, and rightfully so, that, that Mary and Martha do is, 
they send people to Jesus to say, our brother is sick. One of your best friends, Lazarus, is sick. Please come. And Jesus is like, I'll take care of it. Now, yeah. How, how, how is this just like, how is this just like us today? God, my mom is sick. God, I, I'm going to lose my job. Please don't let me lose my job. And you lose your job. Or your mom passes away or, or something like that. What's your first reaction? Narrow view. He didn't listen to me. Or even worse yet, so then, then you start applying for jobs and you apply for 30, 40, 50. Ah. And nothing's happening. Ah. And you're mad. But, you know, but then, you know, God has, you know, a perfect vision. He has a different, he has a path set for you. He sees the whole thing. What did, what did, so who, and this is a great, this is a great one too. Who comes out of the house first to meet Jesus? Is it the one who is anointing his hair? We haven't got there yet. Oh, okay. Well, okay, let's predict. <laughs> let's predict as a test. They say, are, are there not, okay, and this is exactly the spiritual part we're talking about here. Are, Jesus goes, are there not? He always, this is what I love about Jesus. He always answers a question you didn't ask. <laughs> the sickness will not end in death. Then he says to the disciples, let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews were trying to kill you, and yet you're going back there. Are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble. He is not, he is. <laughs> there, and maybe they were getting at, well, if we go during the night, maybe they won't see us. Right? Maybe if we go under the cover of darkness, I, I'm guessing that might have been what happened, that maybe it's not completely illustrated here. And he's like, we're not going at night. We're going in the day because the spiritual light that I'm bringing to the world is far more important than the spiritual darkness. That totally makes sense, especially with Thomas's reaction. Let's go die with Jesus. Isn't that something? <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> Thomas? <laughs> Doubting Thomas? Isn't it so funny how we are? Even those of us who are the most like skeptical or the most critical, how we can be so hot and cold. At this very moment, Thomas is ready, dude. He's ready. Well, you know, they thought Jesus was going to be the king, and yep. well, maybe this is the time. Yep. Have to fight. And then he had his crisis because then Jesus died, mm-hmm. just like Lazarus died, and Mary and Martha had a bit of a crisis, right? All right, let's let's go to the next passage here. Yeah. I don't mean to sleep. sleep. I don't mean two naps. <laughs> yeah, he's like, no, I'm gonna make it very clear yeah. y'all He is dead. <laughs> <laughs> Slap. Verse seventeen to thirty-seven. Seventeen to thirty-seven. Who can read that for us, please? When Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in his grave for four days. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem, and many of the people had come to console Martha and Mary in their loss. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. 
Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. And yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live, even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. Ever. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord, she told him, I have always believed you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. Then she returned to Mary. She called Mary aside from the mourners and told her, the teacher is here and wants to meet you. So, many, so Mary immediately went to him. Jesus stayed outside the village at the place where Martha met him. When the people who were at the house consoling Mary saw her leave so hastily, they, assured, they assumed she was going to Lazarus' grave to weep, so they followed her there. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would, have, would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? he asked them. They told him, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. The people who were standing nearby said, See how much he loved him? But some said, This man healed the blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? And I'm going to keep reading a little bit. Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb. A cave of stone rolled across its entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. So I guess the, the point I'm making is mm -hmm. my translation a couple times specifically said and emphasized how angry Jesus was. And that's a different translation yep. sometimes than some of the others. And I just found mm -hmm. that interesting. Embramaomai is the Greek. <clears throat> it sounds ridiculous. Embramaomai means to snort with fury like a horse. <laughs> now, I don't know about you, but the thought of my Savior snorting with indignation like a horse with someone, that's, that's deep. That's impactful. And you don't just get that. You get verse 35. I believe the shortest verse in the New Testament. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Dacruo. It means he wept with tears. He shed tears. Folks, what God do you believe in that cares so much about you that he would be furious the fact that not only you died, but that people, <laughs> about the human condition. He would snort with fury because of the human condition and because of someone he loved so deeply, he would, he would bawl like a child. Does your corporate CEO feel that way about you? Does, you know, does your favorite entertainer that you love and follow on Twitter care that much about you? Um, for some of, some of us in this world, even our parents may not act in, in that way. Uh, not mine. I'm very thankful. I have very loving parents. Um, but, but I'm trying to make a point here. <laughs> Jesus, who claims to be co-equal with God and our Messiah, the path to our eternal salvation and resurrection cares so much about us that when we suffer, he suffers. Thoughts? And he even knows the rest of the story. Yes. So. Yes. Yeah. He, he feels our pain, even yes. though he 
know was the answer. I mean, he knew four days ago what he was going to do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he knew yeah, he was going to die. He knew, well, I'm going to go there and I know he's dead, and I'm going to raise him to life. Like, he even knew, but even then, he still... So I'm going to ask... So bad for Mary and Martha and Lazarus, like, he loves them. I'll ask you this, and that's a key point of this passage. Four days before he shows up, he knew this was happening. If he cared that much that he was willing to shed tears and snort with fury like a horse, do you think it was easy for him not to go? I'm just going to ask. Do you think it was easy? It had to tear him apart. Because he knew what, what Mary and Martha and his friend Lazarus, what they were all going through how they felt probably abandoned by him, not coming back right away. Is God indifferent about our suffering? What does the New Testament say? It says he cares deeply about our suffering. He cares deeply about us. How much of what he was sad angry mm-hmm. about was about because Martha shows that she you know, that she said that we'll know, we know he'll rise again on the last day right but then Mary comes out and she's like yeah if you were here I mean was that was he angry and weeping about that disbelief more than he was the, mm-hmm. the death mm-hmm. of Lazarus mm-hmm. I mean is he I don't, it doesn't really say that he was weeping over Lazarus' death, necessarily. Well, he came with quite a message, Mm -hmm. too, with Mm -hmm. new, um, what he needed to tell them, you know, on the resurrection and the life. Mm -hmm. And he knows not everyone's going to believe that. Can't it be both? I mean, can't it be that he's upset about both? Can't it be that he's upset that Lazarus is sick and and he's upset about Mary and Martha being so upset and he's upset that people just don't get it. Yeah. They both show faith in the fact, like Martha and Mary both show faith that they know that if Jesus was here, he would would have saved him. This is key. They have some faith that they know that God can heal them, that Jesus can heal like Lazarus. But then Martha even goes a step further though with her faith and she says, I know that even now he'll give you anything you ask. So she still knows that God, or, you know, that Jesus through God could yes. still heal him. Even in the suffering, Martha and Mary both didn't say, well, you're not, you're not the Messiah. I guess you're not the one we thought. Get out of here. They were still ready to believe. They were still ready. They had this faith. And folks, Jesus, when he performs miracles in the New Testament, it is not for the unbelieving who hate him. It's not for the Herods and, and the Pilots of the world who say, prove you're this great magician. He's like, forget you. He's, it's not for Caiaphas and Annas, the high priests. It's for people who truly believe in him, have some kind of faith that he is who he says he is. And then miracles happen. Miracles happen. Doesn't he talk somewhere about... <clears throat> He wants us to be hot or cold, not to, not yeah. to or not to sit on the fence. There you go. Because they're kind of sitting on the fence. They're like, well, yeah, we believe, but man, gosh, you, you know, it, it, it's. I put stipulation on God all the time. Ooh, yeah. That says, if you would have been here, we wouldn't mm-hmm. even have to go through this garbage. If you had done this, and then done this, 
and then done this, and then did this, and then this, this, and this. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Why didn't you do it this way? I know you can. I know you could have, right? I know you could have saved me from. How many of us? But you didn't. Yep. I'm angry and upset about it. Now I start to have some disbelief. Even though I believe you could have, now I'm like, why didn't you do it my way? Here's our box, right, Ken? Here's, here's the starting problem or the starting point. Here's the finish. Why didn't you take this specific path? Because that's the one I prayed. And if you didn't do that, then you're not God. This is exactly what Mary and Martha are struggling with. I think Martha really, you know, she gets a bad rap. Uh-huh. You know, she's like, Poor Mar- oh. she does. Poor Martha. You know, we only remember her for the yeah. thing that Mary's in helping her. Uh-huh. But in this passage, she really does everything right. She says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Hmm? But even now I know that you, you know, you can. I still know you can bring us to the finish. Yep. And then Jesus says, well, your brother will rise. And she says, I know that you will in the last day. And then Jesus says, his I am statement, I am the resurrection of the life, right? And then he says, do you believe this, Martha? And she goes, yes, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God. Isn't that awesome? What she says is, I believe that he'll do anything you ask, but I don't believe you're going to ask that he come back to life today. Right. I know. I know. I understand this whole God and Jesus mm-hmm. thing, so. But I still don't believe you're going to do <clears throat> this. And what does he end up doing? I've got it all figured out. So I don't really need mm-hmm. more of you revealing yourself and who you are. Ooh, you there you go. That's a good one. That's, that's kind of the point I was... I have it all figured out. How often do we pray like that? Every time. Every time? Every I have time. it all figured out. I already got my prayer ready. It's like my speech to the nation. Yeah, I already know. Yesterday, when Jim Sox put out that he was, I found that very interesting. He put out that he's jobless, right? I, I know the backstory. I've been mm-hmm. talking with him about it for months. That he's been overstressed of mm-hmm. work and stuff. And the doctor is telling him, quit your job, get a different job. And so when he put it out there, I read the responses was, Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. You're you know, praying for your family. This and that. I understand how you feel. I get it. And all these responses were like, I'm reading them going, you people have no idea what happened. And then, so then I start praying, like, God, give him you know, this perfect job and blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, wait a minute. I don't know. I don't know how to pray for him right now. I have no clue. Mm-hmm. So I started asking God, and then I asked Jim. I said, you know, nice. help me understand what I'm praying for. Because I went down this road, and I know what Jim needs. Right. I know what he needs. Yeah. It's obvious. He needs a job now. Yeah. Start Monday, right? Because they can't have this lap, so no income. You know. Yep. Now I was, I was very creative. I like that. I got I don't. We live our whole life with assumptions. We think we know everything. We assume it. We don't even know our assumptions. That's the most dangerous part of all. We, we, our assumptions are fact to us. Oh, he got, you know, and it's a personal thing. You know, we assume a whole bunch of different things that may or may not be true. Totally love that comment, Ken. Um, let's finish this out due to time. We started kind of late. I'm just going to read the rest of it. Well, I'll have you read it. <laughs> uh, verses 38 to the end, which is 57. Who can read 38 to 57? Uh, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. 
Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the whole that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this out of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. This is remarkable. And, and maybe it's even predictable. <laughs> that Jesus is a threat to the, to the establishment. Folks, what do you take from this whole passage? What are your reactions here? Still goes on today. Politically, it does. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> you know, the is booming, blah, blah, blah. Name the, name the success out there. If, man, if we, if we let this continue to go mm -hmm. on, I mean, that points out the real reason they wanted to kill him. Not because he was performing miracles, but because people were going to start following him if, he, if they let him continue. I get this picture of Jesus. I, I, I keep going back to this anger thing. Mm -hmm. And in verse 38, it says, Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb. So he is, like you said, snorting around. I just feel like Jesus is angry at sin. Mm. You know, the big picture, sin is causing all this. It's causing his friends to be sorrowful. It's causing people to be stupid and mm -hmm. doing all of this and he can see Satan at work and all these things and he's ticked off. Mm -hmm. And you can just kind of see it reaching the crescendo as it is, um, where you know he's ready to, you know, put an end to this sense grip on society and life. I love it. Love it. You have a passionate God that you serve. 
He's angry about sin. He's angry about injustice, unrighteousness. It's very interesting that it says that Caiaphas did not think of this himself. He was really prophesying that Jesus would die. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. Caiaphas is the high priest. Folks, don't, get, don't make a mistake here. Family of Annas. Annas is the high priest, the first high priest of the Roman province of Judea. He has five sons who will go on to be high priest of the Jews, including Ananus, who, if you remember, is the high priest that has James the Just murdered, who is Jesus' brother later, later. But right now, his son-in-law, Joseph Caiaphas, is the high priest. They're all in it together. They're all in it together. But they are the high priest of Israel. Caiaphas rightly prophesizes that Jesus' death will bring the people of God together. He was 100% right. Chills. One of the most wicked men to ever walk the earth was right because he was a prophet of God. He was dead wrong about how and why. Yeah. You know, I think we, we like to think of people as all good or all yep. evil or whatever. Yes. But God can use people that we consider yes. like all evil even to accomplish what he wants to yep. have happen, you know? This, if you've ever seen Jesus Christ Superstar, I, it's, a, it's one of those bags. It's half right and half wrong. I, you know, I, I like Andrew Lloyd Webber's work. This is not a knock against it. I, you know, don't, I, don't, I don't feel like this, this musical was written from a Christian perspective, but he does get right this. The, the key reason why Caiaphas and the religious elite are so worried is because they think they are going to be destroyed if Jesus goes on the way he's going on. They think that the Romans will see this as an insurrection. Folks, the Jews have just gone through, what, 600 years <laughs> of being oppressed by a foreign invader who is uh, itchy trigger fingers ready at a moment's notice to wipe them out because they are a threat. So this has been going on for a very long time. Caiaphas probably right, rightfully sees that if if some militant people think Jesus is the Messiah that the Jews are expecting, which is a military ruler, and that's where, again, Caiaphas gets this all wrong, and the, and the Jewish elite get it all wrong. They are expecting a Messiah who's a military ruler who will overthrow Rome. That's the perspective Caiaphas is coming from and why he's, he's attacking Jesus out of fear. He thinks that Jesus will raise an army, and guess what? The Roman, no one can stop Rome. This is the height of the Roman Empire, folks. No one can stop Rome. Caiaphas rightfully knows if there is some kind of military insurrection, they will wipe them out. Folks, this is the second temple by this point, kind of the third. They know if someone starts an insurrection, the, the Romans will, will burn it to the ground. And guess what they do in 70 AD? But it wasn't because of Jesus. So Caiaphas and his religious elite go, we've got to do something about this guy. And Caiaphas is getting this prophecy from God that Jesus is going to die for the people. But he is thinking, yeah, it must be because he's a military ruler and we've got to do something about this. And folks, I, I, you know, this is the part that gets me. They see the evidence that Jesus is performing these miracles. Now, <laughs> are you going to act out of fear or out of hope? You can either act out of hope and say, Jesus is the Messiah. So if he is performing these miracles and he is raising people from the dead, I don't care what happens. We're going to be okay. But, you just have yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. To the evidence that's presented to them. Yep. Like, I'm reading in Jeremiah, and Jeremiah, like, they've already conquered them, they've taken everybody away, and there's just a few, pe- like, there's very few people there, and they put somebody in charge. Mm. Like, um, you know, Nebuchadnezzar put somebody in charge, mm. and then they kill him. Get Eliah. They're yep. like, oh, so then they're like, they go to Jeremiah and they mm-hmm. say, hey, like, we know that you, you know, you prophesied Jerusalem would fall. Mm-hmm. It did. You prophesied all this stuff. We believe you. Whatever. Go to, go to your God mm-hmm. and ask him what we should do. Should we go down to Egypt? Should we mm-hmm. stay here? Because they're afraid that they're going to get in trouble for killing, mm-hmm. you know, the person that was in charge. And then he's like, it took him like a few days mm-hmm. to get the message from the Lord. He says... The Lord says, whatever you do, don't go down to Egypt. If you stay here, everything will be great. I yeah. will give you all this yep. food. Everything will be wonderful if you just stay here. Mm-hmm. If you go to Egypt. And guess what they did? Yeah, if you go to Egypt, every, like you will all die from yep. disease, from all this stuff. And then, like, it was just two days ago they said, we'll do anything you mm-hmm. say. We totally believe you. And then that didn't last two long. Two days later, they're like, nope. We're going to Egypt. <laughs> they're they're like in their cart. They they're like, what? Sure. Yeah, okay. Egypt. It's yeah. like, it's nuts. They have so much evidence. Like, yeah. it's definitely like convicting. Like, when you have all this evidence, you have to believe it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Don't be afraid. Don't be yeah. afraid. It's going to be okay. All right. You guys are awesome. You plowed through the extra work here. We, we stayed late. Thank you. We'll see you next week. Thank you. Wow, applause from the audience. This is, oh, here. Oh.